Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 12. Psalm 12, hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 12 may have been written 3,000 years ago, but as with all the Psalms, it connects with every generation. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Reading through the the various commentators throughout church history, uh, couldn't help but notice. Every generation seems to think that it's talking about themselves and their own situation. It can be tempting sometimes to think that, oh, it's never been this bad. Oh, this generation is worse than all previous generations. Well, In the 4th century, Evagrius of Pontus said it this way, First the righteous fail, then the truth is diminished. Not only is there no truth among the righteous, there is no holiness among honest people. Now since the righteous have failed, truth is diminished. Perhaps, he says, the poverty of righteous people is the reason why so many heresies have shot up. Now, this is in the middle of the 4th century as the gospel has just triumphed in the Roman Empire. Millions are professing their faith in Jesus Christ, and yet Evagrius can only see how the truth has perished. You, you might be thinking, but don't, don't you see? Can't you? But he does see. What's actually happening? Mean, oh yeah, they're all professing faith in Jesus Christ. Does that mean that truth has triumphed? No. Because truth is, if you know anything about the 4th century, heresy is proliferating. And for that matter, the people who claim to be Christians, there's an awful lot of suspicion that there's an awful lot of them that are doing this for political gain and political benefit. And, oh, everybody's become a Christian, so I should too. Is that actually truth triumphing? Evagrius looks at it and says, Lord, thanks, I think, but it looks to me like the truth is perishing. Now, why do I say this? Do I tell you, say this so, so you, you're, you're, to convince you that it's not really that bad today? No. I'm telling you, it's still that bad today. The Psalms were collected and gathered together in order to be the first hymnal of God's people. They were given to us as templates and patterns so that we might inhabit them with whatever is going on, whether it was in the 4th century or the 10th century or the 21st century, in whatever time you live, these songs 
are designed to, for us to fill them up with our particular location. Just as Israel was called to sing these songs in David, we are called to sing them in Christ. Have you had any friends who betrayed you? Neighbors who lied to you? Flatterers who flattened you? People who used their tongues to cut you down? Then Psalm 12 is for you. In every generation from David to the present, Psalm 12 is designed for the people of God to cry out to the Lord to find comfort and refuge in Him. Our New Testament lesson comes from Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of our God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul tells us in Romans that the, the problem of Psalm 12 continues today. False teachers do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There will always be those who will tell you what you want to hear. Only the word of the Lord can break through the smooth talk and tell you what you need to hear. And so as we look at Psalm 12 today, let's hear the, the pure words of the Lord that we need to hear that can hopefully break through the double, the double speak that we actually often use with ourselves. Psalm 12 has the inscription to the choir master, uh, which suggests it would be designed for singing in the, in the, in the temple. And it's according to the Sheminith. And we saw a few weeks ago that Psalm 6 is also according to the Sheminith, which simply means according to the eighth. And it could be a musical term referring to an octave in the, the scale. Uh, and, but also in the same way, there are you know, seven days in the week culminating in the eighth day, which is a renewal of the first. And so while according to the eighth might seem like an odd title at first, uh, the early fathers understood exactly what this meant. Because the eighth in Scripture is always pointing forward to the end. God rested on the seventh day, and he hallowed the seventh day, and he called us to rest on the seventh day. But then we sinned, and the seventh day became a reminder of the futility of creation and how there must be an eighth day. There must be a day beyond the seventh day. The Old Testament Sabbath remained as a reminder of creation and of the Exodus, 
how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But the eighth day in the law of Moses became the day of salvation. Every Israelite child, every boy, was circumcised on the eighth day. So on the eighth day, he entered the covenant community of God's people. When a priest was consecrated, he went through a seven-day ritual of purification and entered his priestly duties on the eighth day. The ritual for the restoration of the unclean, as we've seen in the book of Leviticus, also focused on the eighth day, when on the eighth day of the purification, he is restored to the community. Even the feasts of Israel had a focus on the eighth day. Passover was a seven-day feast, but Passover is incomplete, because at the end of Passover, where are you? At the end of Passover, you're still in Egypt. But Passover points forward to Pentecost. You count seven sevens from the the, the Sabbath of the Passover feast. You count seven sevens and the 50th day, which is seven times seven plus one, is Pentecost, the day when you celebrate the entrance into the land. And when you think about it, seven times seven plus one, that's the ultimate eighth day, 50th, the 50th day of entering into, uh, entering into the land, entering into, the, this, the, they might say, the ultimate eighth day. And also, it's worth noting, if you count seven sevens from the Sabbath day, this means that Pentecost was always on a Sunday. Pentecost was always on the first day of the week because it's the day after the seventh Sabbath after Passover. And likewise, the Feast of Booths had two sacred assemblies during its, it's called a seven-day feast, but the two sacred assemblies happened on the first day and on the eighth day of the feast. And so you think about, okay, what's, what's the point of the eighth here? Circumcision, the sign and seal of righteousness on the eighth day, priestly service, restoration of the unclean on the eighth day, most of Israel's festal assemblies are on the first or eighth day. So it's not surprising that the early fathers said, like Cassiodorus, for instance, said, the the eighth refers to our eternal rest. For this world does not experience an eighth day. Once the seventh is finished, it always returns to the first. But in the resurrection of Jesus, the eighth day has dawned. All four gospel writers tell us Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, on the day after the Sabbath. And John is the one who highlights the fact that when Thomas doubted, Jesus appeared to him eight days later. Because salvation requires an eighth day. And so Psalm 12 opens with the words, Save, O Lord, as David, the eighth son of Jesse, cries out to the Lord for deliverance. As we've seen, books 1 and 2 of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 72, set forth a picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. They presuppose that David or his son is sitting on the throne. But that doesn't mean that, oh, David's on the throne, everything's fine, right? No. As we saw last time in Psalm 11, violence and murder are undermining the foundations of society. And if you think about the life of David, there was a time when David himself contributed to that. Even when the king is just and right, we still live in a fallen world. We now have David's greater son, King Jesus, sitting on the throne. But we don't yet see everything under his feet. We see a world in which the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? As Psalm 11 said, the righteous can take refuge in the Lord. Not by running away, not by fleeing like uh, like a bird to the mountains, but by coming into the holy temple of the Lord, by worshiping God, by doing what is right. For the Lord 
is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now, Psalm 11 presupposed that there were righteous people who could do this. But Psalm 12 begins by calling into question whether this is the case. Because the problem of Psalm 12 is that when I look around, I I don't see faithfulness. When I listen to those around me, I don't hear pure words. I hear lies and flattery. David recognizes that the Lord alone is the one who can save. Those first two words, save Lord, bring us to the central reason why this is according to Sheminith, according to the eighth, because we long for a day beyond the seventh day, a day beyond the endless cycles of our world. And there are two words used for what has vanished from the earth. The godly one is gone and the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, that first word, the godly one is gone, the, the, the word translated the godly one is, is the word chasid. Actually, uh, we, you hear later about the, the chasidim, uh, as sort of the righteous, the godly ones. It comes from the same word chesed that we've often heard before, translated steadfast love. It's a challenging word to translate because it captures so much. But steadfast love, covenant loyalty, uh, the English term here, godly, is, is fine, except, except it doesn't really include that theme of loyalty. If you said simply the faithful, that might be a good word for it, but that's actually the other word that's used here because the, the emunim, the second word here, refers to the faithful. So it's sort of like, okay, so it's the faithful and the faithful. Well, okay, so how do you distinguish between these two words? Well, the Hasid is one who is loyal to his friends. He is steadfast in his commitments. When he promises something, he does it. The Emunim are the faithful, those who are true to their word. You can tell, very closely related. But these qualities are paired together often in scriptures. The Chesed and Emet, steadfast love and faithfulness, refers to the qualities. But here are the nouns that refer to the people who exhibit these qualities. Now, why do I highlight that? Because both of these words have to do with being true to your word and the importance of faithfulness. The importance of that it's what's, what's lacking in the world is people who are characterized by these qualities. Think about the importance of faithfulness. I, I discovered the importance of this uh, on my first date with Virginia. After watching a movie, uh, she and Heather went to the bathroom, and I, I said I'd wait for them, and then I had the brilliant idea that I should go get flowers for her. Brilliant, right? But only if I could accomplish it before she got back out of the bathroom. <clears throat> well, let's just say that uh, when she came out of the bathroom, she had discovered that the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Some might call it a small thing, but the principle is rather important. Faithfulness is absolutely necessary for life together. If you can't trust somebody to be where they say they're going to be, you got a problem. Now, you've experienced this in all sorts of ways. Do you have a really close friend, somebody you can tell anything and you, and you know they have your back? Well, have you ever had a person who you thought was that sort of friend? And then... Turns out, maybe they didn't quite think the same way. And now you feel betrayed. And maybe actually, maybe for them, 
they didn't realize it was it was something. There was all those all those little miscommunications, misunderstandings that pile up and turn into these up ruptured relationships. But faithfulness is at the heart of all friendship. To be able to 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 do what you say and then stand by it. Now it, it's mind blowing how what we've done in our society is we have depersonalized faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Do you realize how crazy it is? If, I don't know if you ever think about this. You walk into a store, you gather all this stuff, put it in your shopping cart, and then you walk up to you walk up to the cash register, you wave a piece of plastic, and they're like, "Okay, fine, take all the food you like." That's crazy. I mean, you just wave a piece of plastic at them, and they're like, "Yeah, go ahead, take that." I mean, this came home to me when I I was renting this you know, like fifty thousand dollar minivan out in California once, where I was just like, I just wave a piece of plastic at them, and they let me take this vehicle. Who, if you had a fifty thousand dollar vehicle, would you just sort of say, "Oh yeah, you wave a piece of plastic at me"? Uh, we've depersonalized faithfulness. It's it's actually it's it's very convenient. Uh, we, we got a whole system built on this, and it means we don't actually have to trust each other. We just have to trust the system. And as long as the system keeps working, I suspect we'll keep doing it. But imagine what would happen to your business. If you couldn't trust the system, if you couldn't trust your suppliers to come through, what would happen to your school if if the school couldn't trust students to pay or teachers to show up? I mean, if your boss can't count on you to actually show up at work, that's not a great system. Because faithfulness ultimately comes down to being true to your word. And if you cannot trust anyone, then society crumbles into chaos. Because, and if you, if you can't trust people, if you know that other people are not going to keep their word, but what, what happens to you? Well, if you don't trust someone, what happens when that person asks you a question? Well, maybe I'll just tell them a little bit of the truth, but... Not the whole truth. I'll, I'll just say what they want to hear is to sort of keep people at arm's length. If I don't trust them, I won't really tell them the whole truth. Everyone lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The double heart is rooted in a lack of trust. You want their approval, so you say nice things, flattering lips. But you don't trust them, so to someone else you may say less flattering things. The single heart, the simple heart, is a heart that trusts the Lord and therefore is not worried about what others will say and do. The double heart is expressed when you think one thing but say another. Now, I realize sometimes when you think about what's in your heart, you're like, should I really say that? But every time... Every time we think one thing but say another, we are being double-hearted, double-minded. That's, and recognizing that for what it is, calling it what it is, is what Psalm 12 helps us to do. That the faithful have vanished 
from mankind. He's not, he, he's not using hyperbole here and saying, well, there's still a, a bunch of us who are... He's saying, no, they vanished. They don't exist. They're gone. He looks at himself. He looks at everyone around him and he says, we're all like this. The problem is everyone does it. The sons of Adam, the sons of man, have vanished. All men are liars and flatterers. James tells us in James 3 that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. James is simply taking seriously what Psalm 12 says. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Even you. Even me. So the problem is the tongue. The tongue of the sons of Adam. What do you do with your problems? You bring them to God. And ask Him to do something. And that's what David does in verse 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Now, notice how David says this. So in in one sense, the problem is immense. The problem is universal. Everybody's part of the problem. But David does not pray that God will destroy everyone. Rather, David destroys that the Lord will cut off flattering lips and boasting tongues. And if there's... Any doubt who is in view, he adds in verse 4, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Yeah, everyone lies to his neighbor. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man, but what he prays for is that the tongues and the lips of those who lie will be cut off. Because it's the problem is, this has to change. This can't continue. It can't stay the way it is forever. If it does, then this is how things will be for all eternity. Do you you really want God to uh, not not just save you just the way you are, but then leave you just the way you are? Do you want to be the way you are for all eternity? I hope not. I don't. When God saves us, he doesn't just sort of say, ah, that, that, so you can just be how you are for the rest of... That would be a miserable eternity. I, don't, I wouldn't call that heaven. That's a whole lot closer to hell. We need for God by His Spirit to cut off our tongues and our lips when we have spoken and done that which is false. We need God to change us from the inside out. And we keep seeing the way in which this theme of... Uh, we, Well, think about the Hasid, the one who demonstrates steadfast love. This is related to what we've seen in previous weeks about righteousness and justice. That righteousness has to do with how you order your society. What happens if your home is characterized by people thinking one thing but saying another? If people use words to manipulate, flatter, and boast, using words to prevail over others, words become weapons of control. In Psalm 11, the the problem was violence and murder. And the solution was for God to send fire from heaven against the wicked. In Psalm 12, the problem is flattery and boasting. Tongue, lips. And so the solution is for God to cut off flattering lips and boasting tongues. 
And in verse 5, we hear God's answer. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The Lord promises that he will arise, that he will answer the groans of the needy. And again, we see the focus on relationships of power. That those who are in the weaker position are the ones whom God delivers because of those who are using words to destroy and control and tear down. You know, in this case, it's, it's not violence that's used against the needy. This time it's words. How, how are words used in plundering the poor? If you think about in the book of Ruth, there's this story at the end of the, the kinsman redeemer who cho- chooses not to redeem. And if you read the story carefully, you start realizing what he's actually doing when he's talking to Boaz. He's actually trying to get Boaz to, to sort of join with him in basically plundering Ruth and Naomi because if they can sort of just sort of get away with this, I mean, who's, who's going to stop them? You've got a couple of widows, one of whom's a Moabite. <laughs> who's going to stop us? He tries to conspire with Boaz to defraud Ruth by words. Well, how many courtrooms, boardrooms, how many places around the city are words used to plunder the poor? How often have the wealthy and powerful used words to, to prevent the poor from obtaining justice? How many times has there been no Boaz? Mr. So-and-so stands up and says, let's just arrange this neatly between us. Without objection, so ordered. If a complaint arises, it's squelched in order to protect the powerful. I listened to a friend talk about life in inner city Chicago where the gangs control the streets. The police had done a pretty good job of taking down the big bosses. So the result was anarchy. The result was all the little guys were still there. And so the big bosses were gone. And so now it's everybody for himself. The Hasid is gone. The faithful have vanished. The proud and the boastful plunder the poor. The same thing on on a smaller scale happens in our homes when a man uses words to control and manipulate his wife and children. The same thing happens in a school, in a church, in a business, in the neighborhood. And so the needy groan. Now, notice God does not answer because you're so eloquent. No, God hears you because you groan in the midst of your afflictions. Paul speaks of the groanings of the Christian as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, even though we do not know how to pray as we ought. We are weak. We are afflicted with the sufferings of the present age. But we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, the first fruits of the promised inheritance. And so we groan. And that's what Paul had said just before the passage that we read earlier that uh, for the declaration of pardon, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In Jesus, God has arisen and delivered us. And in Psalm 12, the deliverance was still future when God says, I will arise But in Jesus, God has arisen and has acted. And with God, there is both steadfast love and faithfulness, chesed and emet. You can trust the words of the Lord because when He speaks, 
He speaks truly and simply. The words of the Lord are pure words, verse 6. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, in just the ordinary ancient process for refining silver, you only need to do it once. And you've got a, and you've got a, pr- a product that is 99.5% pure after one time through the furnace. So if you purify your silver seven times, that's, as, as you might suspect from the way Hebrew uses the word seven, this is, this is just talking about, this is the purest silver imaginable. Our words, our words are impure. Our words are an alloy of truth and falsehood because they proceed from double hearts that think one way and speak another. The world is not what it should be. We are not what we should be. But in response to God's words, we give thanks. Notice the movement in the psalm from the lying, flattering words around us that call us to prayer and groaning before God. Lord, help! To the pure, delightful words of the Lord that call us to thanksgiving. Because you, O Lord, will keep them. You will keep your words. You are faithful. You are loyal to your covenant promises. You will keep your words forever. What you have promised, you will do. And this thanksgiving arises up out of our mess. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Our situation hasn't changed in the last half hour. We're still surrounded by vileness. We're still encompassed by lying tongues and flattering lips. What has changed? We have heard the word of the Lord. We have heard His pure word. Words that flow from the single heart of our Lord Jesus. Because in Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John says, full of grace and truth, it's, it's not by any means a translation of steadfast love and faithfulness. But given how John uses grace and truth, I suspect he's actually hearing an echo of steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not so much an exegetical point as it is a theological point. Because everything that Chesed and Emmet mean in the Old Testament... His emphasis on God's faithfulness, His covenant loyalty, that when He says He will do it, He will do it. All this comes together in the incarnation of Jesus, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When God said He would do it, He did it. Steadfast love and faithfulness, Chesed and Emmet, have come together in the grace and truth that is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, grace and truth unite. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? This is why Psalm 12 ends the way it does. Psalm 12 does not end, now go do this. Psalm 12 ends with thanksgiving. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will keep your words forever. You will guard us from this generation forever. Yes, On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness, as impurity is exalted among the sons of Adam. But you, O Lord, will keep your pure and faithful words. So give thanks. That's that's the imperative that Psalm 12 ends with. 
Give thanks to God. Because if you would become a person who more and more speaks from a single heart, well then your single heart needs to be a heart of gratitude that is continually drawn back to the pure words of the Lord that he has spoken and been in the word who became flesh. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Help us because we are double-hearted and double-minded and we, we speak different things to different people. Lord, forgive us. Help us to, to be single-hearted and single-minded in our love for you that we might love you with a whole heart, a whole soul, our whole strength, our whole mind, that all that we are and all that we have might be devoted to you. Lord, help us and renew us by your Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you that we may come into your presence and behold your Word, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.